For today's episode, I will start us out with a quote from the 7th century by Sun Tzu. Here we go. When a person's body is balanced and harmonious, you must merely nurture it well. Do not recklessly take medicinals, because the strength of medicinals assists only partially and causes the person's organ chi to be imbalanced, so that they easily contract external trouble. All things that contain chi provide food and thereby preserve life. Nevertheless, eating them unawares has the opposite effect. The common people use them daily without awareness, and so they hardly recognize when water and fire draw near. For this reason, food is able to expel evil and secure the internal organs and to please the spirit and clear the will by supplying blood and chi. If you can use food to stabilize chronic illness, release emotions, and chase away disease, you can call yourself an outstanding practitioner. This is the special method of lengthening the years and eating for old age and the utmost art of nurturing life. End quote. Inspired by that quote, we look at the following questions. How can we use food as medicine? How do we nurture essence? What makes food nourishing? How can we help our patients, friends, and family to decolonize their experience of embodiment by rediscovering their innate ability to sense what is good and bad for their body? and for their Jing essence in particular? What does that mean for immigrants in the US who are craving the taste of home? Lastly, what are some of the dangers of popular diets and fads, in particular the keto diet and elimination of carbohydrates or of nutraceutical extracts? What is the difference between a carrot and a carrot? And perhaps more importantly, between losing weight and losing Jing essence. What are some of the other magical aspects of flavor or way in Chinese? Which is what the Neijing already mentions as the key to supplementing Jing essence. We have fun as we look at factors ranging from love and fermentation to refrigeration and roundup, and even Mexican Coca-Cola, and of course, German gummy bearchen. And as a special bonus, our conversation concludes with Seth's favorite breakfast congee recipe. So make sure that you listen closely all the way to the end. For today's episode of A Pebble in the Cosmic Pond, titled Food as Medicine, I'm your host, Dr. Sabina Wilms, as usual, supported by Leo Locke, our resident purveyor of multiple perspectives among the seven fools of the bamboo grove. In addition, we are joined by Zev Rosenberg, who you may be familiar with from episode two of our podcast on the true medicine of Yangsheng. Before we get into the conversation, I'd like to remind you to sign up for my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com connect to get notified of new episodes and other offerings. And please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you can if you like it. And also check out the show notes for more information on any of the topics we touched on. Thank you and have fun.
everybody. I actually get the honor of introducing this podcast this week and uh, with Leo Loke and with Sabina. Welcome back from uh, Germany, Sabina. And Thank hope you. Hope you're grounded, well-rested, and over uh, the uh, jet lag, right? Absolutely. Totally. <laughs> so uh, it was our idea, all of us, to discuss uh, food as medicine and my introduction to the concept of food of medicine actually came from macrobiotics, um, which was a quasi-Asian approach to dietetics developed by George Asawa in Japan in the mid-20th century. Actually, earlier in the 20th century, the mid-20th century. He picked it up from another teacher in late 1900s, excuse me, late 1800s named Sagin Ishizuka who developed the term, and the term macrobiotics comes from Yang Sheng. In fact, uh, Paul Unschuld also, as we discussed last time, uh, defines it as Yang Sheng, as macrobiotics is how he, rather than nourishing life. But in the attempts to westernize macrobiotics, um, other places claim that it was a Western nutritionist, I think in the 1940s, named Hoofland, I think he was German, who had a book called Macrobiotics Out. Maybe we can research that again. But And then started using the idea of balancing amounts of protein and fat and more Western concepts of nutrition, which in my opinion bastardized the macrobiotic ideas, the amount of acid to alkaline. And there are all these... Uh, complicated theories about that. But anyway, that's um, how I came into this discussion. The problem today in sharing nutrition with our patients in the schools, with our students, is that there's a many diets out there that we can call empirically based. They have little or no relationship to the actual theories of Chinese medicine or even the actual uh, Chinese dietetics itself, which is a very broad, vast, complicated undertaking since there's so many different regions of China. And anybody who knows China at all knows that there are regional cuisines that vary from place to place. And you know, Sichuan is famous for its spicy, peppery food and that and the uninitiated break out into a sweat with the first bite. <laughs> of, course, of course, in Sichuan, it's so hot and humid that it's very easy for that to happen. So um, we were talking before we went online today about these empirical diets, one of which being the keto diet. And many of these diets um, are um, very one-sided. I call the keto diet a three-legged chair. Mm. It's like it's missing a leg, so it you have to compensate for it. So if you eliminate an entire food group, i.e. carbohydrates, or minimize it to a great extent, you are basically having a medicinal effect on the metabolism. Now, I said at the beginning that um, macrobiotics def define food as medicine, as being you know, the first recourse of medicine. Ayurvedic medicine and Tibetan medicine say the same thing. When treating illness, the first recourse we take is by looking at the diet and changing the diet, because that's the longest term, most subtle influence on the human organism. It's something that we all do two or three times a day or more. Every single day, we're taking food and drink 
turning it into ourselves, separating clear from turbid. But if we eliminate a whole class of foods, it becomes a diet of, basically I define two types of diet. One is a medical diet where you're trying to get a specific medical response or result from eating in a certain way. The other is a maintenance diet, which is a day-to-day diet to maintain health. And uh, the maintenance diet has to be flexible based on seasonal changes, individual constitutions, preferences, cultural factors, sociological factors, environmental factors, and ecological factors. And the last two especially are, are very important in modern times. But one of the problems I see with diets such as the keto is that it defines things quantitatively rather than qualitatively. In other words, all carbohydrates are basically the same. But as I told my students over and over again at Pacific College, there's a very big difference between a bowl of uh, black rice or quinoa and angel food cake and how the body responds to it. All carbohydrates are not the same. And to call an entire food group evil, it's the same thing as you know, someone who's more of a plant-based diet person saying all animal food is evil. You get into these extremes, which reflect these extremes in a culture and don't really help, you know, maintain balance, not only in a personal health scale, but on a cultural scale and an environmental scale as well. Because obviously a, a diet with a high amount of meat protein is not sustainable for planet Earth at this point. Just one argument for keto, although of course you can do keto as a vegetarian or with less animal food, but it's much more difficult to do so. Okay, so that's my opening statement today. Yeah, well, thank you for putting it so beautifully and uh, comprehensively. Uh, I really like how Zev frames the, the issue. For me, I think what I've observed clinically with people on keto is that definitely there is this uh, or keto-like diet, or cut, uh, completely eliminating or cutting down the carbohydrates substantially, especially like sugar, right, and and flour-based product, is that you can get very dramatic results. You know, people lose weight very quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, and and uh, in that goal-based in. in with, with losing weight and looking aesthetically pleasing, that is very rapid. And I think that's why it is popular because people can see their friends and family change dramatically towards getting closer to the social ideal of how the body should look like and they want to have the same results. Well, the problem with that is they don't use, they're not that sustainable to a lot of people over longer periods of time, right? And then I also see, this is a really interesting phenomenon that I watch year and year over, is that, you know, in, in not the, only the West now, because the new year is 1st of January. So people in the Northern Hemisphere would tend to want to do their diet for the, the new diet for the year, the new year resolution around 
first of January, which is winter time mm-hmm. in Northern Hemisphere. So what I see a lot, or used to see a lot, is that people will come in with really high enthusiasm. To change the cut down the carbs in their diet in the death of winter, and then they did really well for the first seven days, and they <laughs> crashed. <laughs> right? I was like, "Well, it makes total sense because in the winter, in the traditional Chinese culture and medical advice, this is a time when you eat a lot of carbs." Because it's so cold out there, you need the carbohydrates plus the animal food or whatever oily food to keep to have enough calories to produce to withstand the chill of the winter. So, if you cut down the carbs at that particular moment in time, the body have to cannibalize itself to finance that calorie. In uh. Need caloric need. Well, if you have enough of those things, the body might be able to use it. But a lot of times, what the body does is it start cannibalizing on its muscle tissues mm. because it cannot. It, seven days is too short of a time to train the body to switch its metabolism pattern. So, but they still have to work. They still have to take care of the kids. So the body says, "Well, you want me to do all these things without giving me all the energy, the extra energy that I need, and it's so damn cold out there. I'm going to eat up and use up any reserve that you have, including those that you don't want to lose." So I think that's the 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 phenomenon I observe year over year over year, and then people crashed, and then they give up because because they're you know on the brink of madness and losing their mind. And losing their vitality, they couldn't even walk up the stairs. And so you know I think what? That's I, the one. I yeah. I can really feel that as somebody who is going through menopause, my body is changing hugely. Has been for the last couple of years, but really for the last year. And I've got, as Lily and my friend used to call it, the German hips. And it's just, it's just it. <laughs> the German thighs, and it's just a natural process that that my body is really changing, and going against it is. I mean, I'm a really physical person, and I love swimming in cold water. So I can we know that <laughs> I can tell when when I when I you know go for a really long bike ride or I go swimming in the snowstorm in in the in the sound here. I'm ravenous, and I need the calories. And you know, calories—it means it's related. It just derived from the Western, from the from the Greek, or is it Latin? I don't know. Calor means means heat. So it's oh. it's for staying warm, and it it's like it makes so much sense to me. And I could just see how somebody who is not comfortable with or who is not educated about menopause or or you know these these changes in the body would be would be fighting this change that is just a natural change and and it's doing the wrong thing yeah. yeah i mean my body is just doing what it's doing and it's totally that's what it's supposed to do at this age 
So I, well, I know, think it makes so much sense that there's a really bad effect. And the other example that I have is when I was a hardcore vegetarian for many years when I was young. And then, which was hard to do in Germany because Germans love their meat, but it, it was kind of a political or a spiritual thing. And then I got pregnant and I had dreams of schnitzel and, and German meat dishes. And I looked at my husband and I'm like, we're going to the German restaurant. And he was like, we're doing what? Sabina, you're a vegetarian. And I'm like, no, I need meat. So that's the other thing from my perspective for for women during their reproductive years and and especially during pregnancy there are just times when when your body has very different needs i don't know if that's helpful one thing one thing i want to point out because um uh one of my former students and who's now a practitioner went to facebook to say i need all the support i can get for the new years i'm starting a keto diet and it's a very big discipline for me and so on and so on. And when with my own patients, I never ever recommend a diet. I recommend principles of correct eating and um, talk about seasonal aspects of food, local, organic if possible, finding a ratio that works for the person based on their diagnostic and constitutional information that I get. But you know, you give people a blueprint, if anything, because they have to use their intuition. And also, of course, a bunch of recipes like for miso soup and congee and whatever else. You know, the idea of home kitchen medicine, which is also part and parcel mm, of nice. Asian medical traditions as well, as we know. I remember uh, Lillian Bridges, when COVID started, she had these, you told me, Sabine, that she had these two huge jars of kimchi by the door <laughs> to keep pathogens away. Yeah. The smell and the garlic and yeah. the spice wood. In the big fancy office building in downtown Seattle, she greeted everybody with yeah. these giant jars of kimchi. I was happy. Yeah. <laughs> it was the Korean chicken soup, I guess. Yeah. Right? yeah. Pandemic stuff. So that's how I approach it, is uh, not giving people a diet, because very few people, as Leo pointed out, can stick to a diet past a week. But... um as a way of life aspect, you know, uh, mm. Sheng nourishing life. I, when I, you know, macrobiotic at one point became like, God for, you know, uh, quote unquote, the cancer diet, because there was this one physician in Philadelphia, Anthony Satellero, who claimed that he had cured himself of prostate cancer with this diet. And the truth was he was also on female hormones and also had a castration procedure. So it wasn't exactly that the diet cured him of it. It may have helped control his condition at the time. And I was in Boulder, Colorado. I just opened up my Chinese medicine practice in 1982, 83. And all, I became known as the macrobiotic halfway house because people would go to these doctors <laughs> or practitioners in Boulder and get a diet. 50% brown rice, 25% beans, no fruit, fish once a week, one of those kind of diets where everything was arbitrarily spelled out. I say, you can have a baked apple once in a while. You can have uh, different types of grains. You need to be more flexible. You need to have the seasons. And I became anathema in that community for suggesting intuition and common sense. There was one practitioner who said, if you have one drop of fried food or oil, the cancer will come back. 
In other words, using fear to keep people on a diet with no empirical or traditional historical evidence whatsoever. So you see a lot of that going on as well. People had everything on the food, right? Mm. And I want to also. Oh, go ahead. oh, please go ahead. So what I notice also is something that most, I think, a lot of people who do not have the Chinese medical training don't notice or unaware of, is the the amount of damage that that these arbitrary and diets do to the body in the process of switching from one to the other is the damage to the jing to the essence because the jing is the 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 capital the life capital the savings that we have a lot of times when we go through these diets that uh diminishes or deny our bodies their needed nutrients, the body has no choice but tap into the prenatal gene of the patient to finance those dramatic uh, demands. So what you, I could see as a practitioner is just from the appearance of the person, you can see that there is tremendous damage to the gene of the person, but an, to an untrained eye, that would seem like, oh, the guy has slimmed down, the person has lost weight. No, the person has lost their gene, a substantial portion of their gene. But to, to people who are not familiar with the essence concept of Chinese medicine or Ayurveda, they have no reference point all they see is the person have slimmed down, but they don't realize slimming down can be a good slimming down a, and then a bad slimming down. Right. <laughs> uh, that's another thing that I've observed over the years. That, yeah. I have two books on macrobiotic diet and... Um, one or or one was one is an old hippie book um and it talked about ma it was but it was i think it was a western author i'm sure you know it's Evan. i don't remember the title right now but it talks about macrobiotic diet in terms of yin and yang and another book that i have is about like zen temple cuisine and it's also very much, it, it's not about macrobiotic diet at all. It's just about right, right. Zen temple cuisine. And it's wonderful. And these Trojan, books... Trojan Ryori, it's called. Yes, yes. And it, I, was, I, I was struck by what you said about the acid alkaline thing, which would be the West, I think it would be the Western attempt to scientize, to make yin yang the, to turn to translate the language of yin and yang balance into a western scientific language is that correct yeah that's the end result of what a lot of people know including bob felt call osawa's folly in other words osawa when he brought what he called macrobiotics to the west felt that i think we mentioned this in the other podcast that um um, Westerners were too materialistic to see heaven as yang and earth as yin. So he made earth yang and heaven yin. 
So he reversed the yin and yang properties of heaven and earth, but kept the yin and yang properties of male and female the same, hot and cold the same, light and dark the same. So he changed some of them oh my God. and not others <laughs> of them. And it created a whole confused yin yang system. And then when you started working with things like acid alkaline, well, acid is yin within yang. When the yang is like, it became like oh totally convoluted. So I'll give you a very simple example. So uh, female is yin and the uh, expansion now from earth towards heaven is now considered to be uh, a, a yin thing and contraction is considered to be a yang thing, which is kind of convoluted from the original understanding of it. So a man's sexual organs expand means they're yin and a woman taking in her internal sexual organs are now yang because it's earth is now yang. So now you're Whoa. left with a thing with <laughs> male yang expanding yin, woman yin internally yang, and right away you have obfuscation and convolution, which, you know, having studied macrobiotic theory for years before Chinese medical theory, left everybody confused. And that's why it basically doesn't exist today. The basic dietary teachings, I tried to reorient them into a Chinese uh, foundation, especially using the works of people like Li Dongyuan of the uh, Piwei Pai, the uh, yeah. the uh, spleen stomach school. And it had a lot of resistance, but it's okay because resistance is death. And uh, unfortunately, there is no macrobiotic teaching movement really going on today. So uh, it's... Ripe for the taking, so to speak. It seems like there is a real lack of Chinese medicine based. I think there's a big demand right now, a big interest in in diet for Chinese medicine practitioners. I think it's a very popular topic. So there's a hole because people don't know how to read the Chinese sources and nobody is right now who is familiar with Chinese sources, or there are very few people who are teaching this in the institutions and in continuing education classes. And the way I see people filling that hole, correct me if I'm wrong here, what I've seen in like classes on, on pregnancy or postpartum in particular, which is kind of my field, is, is people give advice using Chinese or Ayurvedic, like using rare substances, they're they're recommending individual spices that that are really or substances that are really really fancy that they really don't have a cultural connection to. And this goes a little bit into the direction, Leo, that I think you and I talked about. We wanted to take with this um, talk is how much do we use a substance from a foreign culture, which we do with medicine all the time. That's what our herbs are. But when it comes to food, I see our profession using things like, I don't know, goji berries, goji, what what are like, I don't even know. I don't live in California. Like there's always the latest trend when you go to a health food store and there's all these like big bags of fancy, whatever, um, juiced, substances that have weird berries in them like there's always a new trend and I don't know anything about these trends but but they're they're using these these foreign substances 
plucking them out of their cultural context. And yes, every food or most natural foods have wonderful um, dimensions to them, but they're taking it out of the context and think that they can fix whatever is wrong in the diet or get the benefit. They're using it like a, like a, like a pharmaceutical substance. It's really popular with the power yoga gym crowd, these things, like the instant yeah. hit of like uh, maca or goji berry and put it in with some shilajit and there are actual bars that max, mix up all these decoctions. It's the same as those protein shakes that people were drinking a few years ago and may still be. They want instant nutrition. Get into my body now, get the, you know, the essence of these foods and boom, pump it up, boost it up kind of thing, you know, so. That's the mentality behind that. I'm curious to hear uh, Zev's observation, say over the last 40 years, do you think that this phenomenon is just a repeat, just with different products, or has it intensified over the last 40 years? I'm curious to hear your experience. You know, um, I think the nutraceutical industry has really taken off in the last 40 years. So there's a lot, there are all these fads that come around. Like I remember for a while when Prozac first came out, there was Herba Pros on the shelves. Like they put, you know, St. John's Wort and things like that into products. There were, we, we as a profession are still suffering from the ubiquitous, when you check out in a natural food store, pep up things with mahuang extractions in them, not even just the herb, but a cooked down crude extract of mahuang to lose weight, to have more energy. And as we know, a runner died from one of these things. And then some senator decided to be heroic and ban ephedra products mm -hmm. from the marketplace, which led it to us finding it more difficult to get it, even though it's still legal for us to use mahuang to find a supplier who will actually make it available for fear of liability is much more difficult. Also, of course, Ma Huang, who has the basis of Fedrine and Sudafed and those products, was one of the original uh, sources for making methamphetamine in, in uh, bootleg labs around the country. Which, So, you know, when you turn things into these fads, it does have consequences for people's health, for practitioners. I mean, something like Ma Huang in a, in a concentrated large dose on a checkout counter in a natural food store is really an abuse, you know? So, yeah, I've seen it going on for a long time, all kinds of these dietary fads we just discussed, you know, macrobiotics as quote unquote, the cancer diet and um, I saw people miss necessary medical treatment that could have saved their life. Not to say that I think that the Western medical establishment in mm -hmm. cancer has all the answers parsed out, but you know, timely treatment from whatever methodology is always the best choice. And um, you see it in terms, everything in this society is commercialized and turned into a money-making product is really the main problem. Which is something we talked about in the last podcast with with, with George Brenda. and Brenda about the yeah, yeah. the monetization of meditation and the danger involved in 
in selling spiritual cultivation and who has responsibility for or who is at fault when things go wrong? Right. Is it the people who are consuming the product? Is it the teachers? Or is it just that we didn't know? Mm-hmm. And, and as we talked about with Brenda uh, in the last discussion, uh, I pointed out that one glaring feature that underlies a lot of these things is the privileging of the intellect over body sensations. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, and I pointed out that that is actually, could be an influence or direct heritage from colonialization. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's how a colonizing power uh, controls a native population, is you go mm-hmm. in and you cut them off from their natural ability and wisdom of tuning into their sensations and the body and know this is right for me and this is not right for me. But how do you disempower a people from the connection to the land, to their food, to their spirituality is you, uh, is you, you, you condition them you brainwash them into believing and thinking that that's not the source of knowledge and guidance. My my words are your ultimate guidance. That's how you switch a people towards the the colonizing power. So that's how do you re- how do you revert? How, what do you both do as practitioners in 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 reverting that in encouraging? people to, your patients, to listen to their bodies. When it comes to, and I want to bring this back to Jing, because both of you mentioned, Leo, you mentioned Jing as losing Jing as opposed to losing weight. And then, Zev, you mentioned the essence of substances. So we're playing with with Jing as a key aspect of the diet. So how do you, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, Leo, what you're saying is, what what is lacking is the ability to pay attention to what is feeding your jing each of our indiv- each of us knowing what is good for feeding our jing or preserving our prenatal jing so what do you do I with that i think that's a beautiful way to put it <laughs> so how how do you guys address this in 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 clinic in your clinic for me um, Zev, you want to go first, or? Oh, you can go first. I'm looking up a quote here. Okay. So for me, because I work with a lot of immigrants in my practice, I, as I mentioned before, I counted like 33 different countries, you know, first generation immigrants. So for most of the immigrants I work with, it has to do with eating food that they grew up with to a certain extent because when they came to America, they lost touch with their traditional or native cuisines. Even though they can replicate that to a certain extent in America, but as you pointed out, uh, Sabina, it's not the same, right? You just came back from Germany. It doesn't taste the same. 
I think within that is <laughs> the gummy it, bears. I just want everybody who listens to this podcast to have a taste of a German homemade gummy bear. It's not the Haribo version. It's like it. It's like a world apart. It's like a packaged. Plastic wrapped carrot that was frozen and defrosted compared to what you grow out of what you pull out of a beautiful natural macrobiotic biodynamic garden. It's like oh, oh a fresh gummy bear that is like still warm and juicy. Oh, don't get me started on You're gummy bears. You're talking about qualities of things as opposed to mm. quantities of things, right? Yeah. So. You, there's too many people think a carrot is a carrot is a carrot, but where it's grown, how it's grown, when it's picked, the soil that it's grown in, the microorganisms in that soil, how you prepare it, what spices you add to it are all part of the equation, right? Mm -hmm. And it creates taste. And you know, there's this whole gluten-free fad in America. Like I have a new patient who's coming who called me, I can't take these herbs from such and such company because they have gluten in them. Right. Yes. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to deal with that when they come in two weeks. And um, but at the same time, there's a lot of evidence showing that when people who have trouble with gluten here go to Europe and eat gluten, they go to the cafes of France, they don't have those reactions. They have to have a croissant in Paris. There's a number of reasons for this. Number one, programming oneself in a certain way, but that the programming of enjoying French food wine and bread and so <laughs> forth overcomes the other programming of gluten is bad for me. But the other aspect is that wheat that is not organic, that is grown here, is sprayed with Roundup to ripen it. It's not used just as an herbicide. It's also used to kill the chaff that surrounds the wheat berries. And you pick the wheat when it's immature and it dries out in an immature way, and you have all these other leptins and other substances in the wheat now that wouldn't be there, plus pesticide residues. Then you make pastries with a lot of sugar or fats. Sometimes you add preservatives and chemicals to it if you go to a 7-Eleven and buy this garbage. Or you make yeasted bread, which doesn't allow the natural fermentation to occur. All these things make people sensitized to eating wheat products in that way. Whereas in Europe, the tendency would be more, I would think, to have things that are more locally grown, less chemicalized, less, and there's still enough pride in actual artisanal preparation of food that a lot of these factors don't exist. So. Yeah. Uh, I've heard stories like that from my own patients. You know, they would, they would gain weight eating wheat here Mm -hmm. in America. And then once they went to the Alps mm -hmm. and they start eating bread every day and they start losing weight. And then when they came back to America, it started again. They start gaining weight again, right? So that has always been on my mind. It's like, how do people lose weight on wheat and gain weight on wheat? You know, different continent, different, it's like, is it, it is more than just the organic, I think, also, because for example, Sabina, you can make a lot of the food here with homegrown, organic, whatnot, but it still will not taste the same as you would have in Germany, right? Yes. 
And I have to yeah, say, so, what I do is I have my own grain mill because I know that like whole wheat flour, it, it goes rancid and it is stored. Yeah. It is not refrigerated here in the grocery stores. So when you buy whole wheat flour, people think that you make whole wheat bread. It's healthier than white flour when actually white flour is not rancid, whereas the whole wheat flour that is sold um. in the... U.S. health food store. At least this was the case years ago when you know when I first moved to the U.S. and I was trying to replicate the German bread that I grew up with, and I was desperate for good bread. And at the time, there was no decent bakery in Tucson, Arizona, and I ended up getting a grain mill and grinding my own grain. So it, part of it is the is the grain. You're absolutely right, Zef, and part of it is is you know you grind it fresh, and then I make a meal and I. I, I ferment it for two or three days and I sprout the seeds and all of that. Um, so that it's part so of that storage. So everything. that's my curiosity. What is, what adds to the, the food that makes it so special? Like in your case in Germany, you went back and you tasted your mom's cooking and you just like, everything is different. So what, what, on the surface, everything is the same, right? It's flour, yeah. is licorice, is salt. What is it that make it unique and especially nourishing to your body? And I, I think, think that comes I back to yeah. A really big aspect is also love. I just have to ah. throw that in there as well. Like I know when I go, there was a little Thai restaurant in Portland that my daughter and I would go to and the couple who ran it were just lovely and she was from Thailand and he was western and you know Lillian always talked about like Lillian would cook me food so love is another ingredient so there are all these moving parts to what makes food nourishing mm -hmm. because in the Neijing is is a there's a very well-known statement right it says uh for jing tonification, right? Bu zhi yi wei, use taste to nourish the jing. That was the, the earliest statement we have on how to tonify jing. Bu zhi yi wei. So what, what is this taste? Right? Because it's not just something that's tasty and heavy in taste. Because in, a, in America, we have very heavily seasoned and taste food products but does that nourish the jing or is that way very specific that seasoning or that taste very specific to your cultural and ancestral upbringing so that's my question because when you go back to germany you feel like the food nourishes you in a very special way that other foods can cannot and could not because that's my observation with a lot of immigrants is they have to carry this memory from their motherlands and they come to the United States but is there is something missing that they could not find well you know we're not a rooted people in this country number one or I'm talking about the all or I should say peoples we're a multicultural nation Mm -hmm. And, but you do find areas like, for example, like in Queens, you have like, you know, a Nepalese community, you have a Bukharian community, you have a Korean community, you have different communities in these 
cities that recreate to some degree, at least, their traditional cultures. But um, most Americans, people who are raised here, including the kids of these quote-unquote immigrants, are already exposed to television, peer pressure, school lunches, sodas, and all the rest of it. And everybody wants to belong. So you lose that cultural wisdom about food, among many other things as well, in that process. So, And then there's the thing, like a Mexican Coca-Cola, right? Mexican Coca-Cola. No, 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 no. I'm saying the opposite, Zev. You're shaking your head oh, in disgust. I'm saying- Like root beer, like no, a root beer with roots cooked together. Yeah. Well, Mexican Coca-Cola is still made, at least it was last time I had it, it was still made with sugar. So Mexican Coca-Cola was very different is very different from US Coca-Cola which is made with corn syrup. So mm. there's something about a Mexican Coca-Cola that is so much better than a modern US Coca-Cola. So I remember Sabina you talked about strawberries. Oh, this, yeah. About the strawberries that you ate on this trip back home. Can you tell us more about that? How's because you live in a, an area in Washington that has is well known for all these organic and beautiful produce, right? <laughs> so, what is it about German strawberries that made you so remarkable that you you would mention it to us? When I was even just like fifteen twenty years ago, I only eat organic fruit. I, I don't. I avoid chemicalized fruit in any fashion, but you used to be able to get blueberries organic or commercial at a certain time of year. I can now get organic blueberries eight months of the year, organic raspberries 12 months a year. Now, some of the time they ship it in from South America in the opposite growing season. But you know, here in Mexico and here in Southern California, they've recreated conditions. It's kind of like growing reishi mushrooms, linger or shiitake mushrooms, which used to be pretty rare, they have these artificial logs and they grow the mushrooms on it. They have found artificial conditions for growing these fruits. And while I still will eat those organic blackberries, I could tell you that if you pick a wild one or one right out of a field under natural growing conditions, the taste is going to be very different. So, Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Sir. Well, um. I have to admit, I've changed my tune, Leo, because I just started eating the strawberries out of my garden. Yes, mm. and they're actually pretty good. So, ah. um, um, there are there are and and I you know I used to live in Portland, and there are the hood strawberries that are really good. But the thing oh, is, yeah. you have to get them at the farmers market, and they have to be picked that day. I mean, they go mushy, and they they. They, you you have to basically eat them within the day, and you can't once you refrigerate. The other thing is, I personally don't like refrigerating food. I mean, I will if I have to, but it it to me refrigeration really kills the food, and I think Americans oh, are yes. so used to st like sticking eggs in the fridge. I will not eat refrigerated eggs. I mean, I've I've had chickens most of my most of my adult life, but a, a egg out of a refrigerator to me is really is really dead. So when once you stick a strawberry in the fridge, I think it's all over. 
So We're that's definitely part of it. And in Germany, the way you buy strawberries, the way my mom would not buy strawberries in the grocery store. She only buys strawberries. And my mom is not a hippie. My mom, they're very, you know, very straight, conservative, proper older Germans. But they're they're not at all counterculture or anything like that. My mom buys strawberries at these little roadside stands, or she has a little nursery down the street where she gets all her vegetables. She goes to the grocery store for whatever, for her whatever else, but she gets her meat from the butcher, her bread from the bakery, and her vegetables from this little nursery that she's been supporting for 20 years. Or she goes to the market in in the middle of the town. So I think that's the other thing. And, and we are starting to see that in the U.S. with the farmer's markets. I think that's really, for me, it's really changed. Um, it's very different from the way the food landscape was when I first came to this country and moved to Tucson 30 so, or so years ago. So you're saying traditionally Germans don't refrigerate eggs? Traditionally, that- nobody refrigerated anything because two generations ago, we didn't have refrigeration, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know. So I- when you were growing up, nobody put f- eggs in the fridge. I said two generations. <laughs> uh, but... Um, but- I, I mean, don't think experience. my mom refrigerates eggs. I don't know. No, I think she she might. No, my mom uses because, the fridge. Because in Malaysia, it, yeah. you, you would thought with all these programming around eggs and egg safety in a tropical country, highly humid with bacteria growing yeah. everywhere, people will refrigerate the eggs? No, because I used to work as a teenager at a grocery store. Nobody refrigerate the eggs. Okay? And nobody had any food poisoning from the eggs. Right? Yeah. So I was talking to a farmer years ago in uh, in northern Washington. And he was telling me that his eggs can stay even in places as warm as Arizona for six months. Because he says... The properly raised chickens have a very strong protective layer on the outside of the eggshells that they can actually stay fresh for a very long time. But when we when we start raising weak chickens and we wash the hell out of the eggs <laughs> to keep them hygienic, then they can't keep very well for a long time. Right. So that was something interesting I learned from the, yeah. the chicken farmers. So I want to take us back. Um, before we wrap this up, I would love, um, Zev, I would love to get your response to my question that I posed a while ago about how do you teach um, patients about sensitivity towards feeding their or supporting or nourishing their jing. And I know you have a great recipe that you eat for breakfast. So do you feel like sharing it? Okay, so um, I begin every morning with, in the winter, what it's very called, I'll have like whole oat kanji. But most of the year, I, especially here in Southern California, I use black forbidden rice. It's an Asian rice, and there's different varieties even of black rice, some of which are actually dark red that come from uh, Thailand or mainland China. Mm. So I'll take about, this is a one-person 
dose, so to speak, three-quarter cup of that rice. And then I add two to three times the amount of spring water in a small crock pot, which has different settings. It has low, high, warming, and those are the main settings. You get one for like 18 bucks on Amazon or at your favorite store. Then I use my favorite Korean bamboo salt, which has its own story to tell because it's mineralized, very high in sulfur. Basically, uh, a great Korean physician, early 20th century, um, using five-phase theory, you combined all the five-phase. First of all, gathering the salt from a special location on the shores of Korea, which is the water phase, taking that salt and packing it inside bamboo, which is the wood phase, with special Korean red clay, which is the earth phase, sticking it into an iron cauldron, which is the metal phase, <laughs> and then cooking it with fire, which is the fire phase, nine times. The ninth mm. time he does it, it uh, it's at a very high temperature, and it melts the salt and the bamboo ashes and the clay together, and it creates like this amethyst purple color salt, which is very high in sulfur. You could smell the sulfur on it. So it, it's very good for the kidneys, very good for the the tai yang for the bladder it has many many uses some people gargle with it i just use it in cooking then i have a palm full of dried cordyceps and i put that in and i cook that overnight at a depending on the crock pot and the time of year low setting or or high setting i this time of year i tend to use the low setting in the morning i add a palm full of goji berries a palm full of pine nuts uh, Ron Teagarden has some great uh, pine nuts from uh, a famous mountain in northern China, which borders Korea. And sometimes I'll use uh, dried golden berries and or one or two uh, dadzao, or I should say hongzao uh, jujubes, and cook that for another couple of hours. Then when I serve it, I serve it with a little oat milk and some rice syrup, which is a complex carbohydrate sweetener, unlike things like uh, um, maple syrup or honey. Or I find honey and whole grain cereals doesn't go well together anyway. Or what's the other one that's very popular now for a sweetener? Um, forgetting the name. It's also a syrup. But anyway, malt syrup uh, maybe. No, no, it, rice syrup is a kind of malt syrup, and of course, that's the syrup that's actually. Used in the formula Shao Jianzong you know, the uh, it's a yitong, it's the it's a barley malt. That's the sweet. It's not meant to be sugar or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's what I use. And I'm I'm gonna have to sign off here. That's a nice way to end with a nice recipe. Yeah, thank you and, for sharing that. I know that's your daily ritual, and I know that that's yeah. that's that and puerity and a lot of medicinal mushrooms, such as, and it's obviously uh, working. When we look at your, you know, you're just radiant, and and you have a very busy clinic schedule and teaching schedule. So, I think that's a. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that recipe. I think that's. Okay, we'll see you guys soon. Yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. All the best. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, please help us spread the word. And last, but definitely not least, go out there and spread some positive vibrations between heaven and earth. Thank you.